Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Nice to see everyone here on Tuesday night for my, my favorite gathering, one of two gatherings of the week. Um, I just, I wanted to start with some good news. Um, you know, we've been asking um, our community to pray for people who are not well, and I got a really lovely email from um, the parents of um, Raya Zaman, if you recall, the 12-year-old who um, was in the hospital with cerebral palsy, and so um, I got a message from, from their parents last night. Um, Dear Grace, Salaikum Aslam, praise be to God by the mercy of Allah and with everyone's prayers and help. Raya has been doing well for the last few days. Her condition is stable now and she got released from the hospital yesterday. She is breathing on her own normally throughout the day and at night she needs help from a BiPAP machine. She doesn't need a ventilator at this point. There is a slow and long recovery ahead, but at least we can do that in a home environment if she continues to improve. And this was the longest we had to stay in the hospital. Thank you so much for requesting our beloved Usuli members to pray for Raya. Mentioning Raya in the Friday khutbah and the weekly halakha brought so much peace, comfort, and strength into our heart that we felt as if there is a large family around us and everyone is praying for Raya. So I wanted to just share that good news, alhamdulillah, and may Raya continue to get better, inshallah. Um, and then on, also on that note, we learned um, last night that um, Sheikh Yusuf Al-Karadawi has COVID. I don't know exactly when, but um, he was uh, on his Twitter, um, the, whoever's managing his Twitter was asking for prayers. So please do pray for Sheikh Al-Karadawi and also his family, obviously, for the things that they're going through. Um, and also let's remember, um, you know, Salman Al-Oda and Ahmed Sidiya and all the people who are in prison in Egypt and, and languishing or suffering in China, in India, in um, Burma, um, Syria, Yemen, Libya. I mean, where do we stop? Every, everywhere, you know, around the world. Um, there's just so much suffering going on. So, inshallah, we're so we're so lucky and we're so blessed here in America. I, I you know, we, we don't have any of this kind of suffering. And I, especially during Ramadan, um, I feel like, you know, the time goes by so quickly, you know, between the Tarawiyah prayers, the iftar, the fasting, the, you know, the studying and all of that. Um, but every so often, you know, you get these moments of clarity. And I, I'm so grateful, like, I just for that moment in time where you just feel the gratitude of everything that you're experiencing and that, you know, you have an ability here um, to change something, to do something, to be, um, make a, f a choice, you know, based on your freedom. Nobody is limiting, you know, your time or your ability. It's totally in your own hand. And when I think about all the people, all the Muslims around the world who don't have that ability, they don't have any freedom to make any kind of choice. Um, it really puts things into perspective. And it, I feel like, you know, when time is passing so quickly, we just have to remember and we have to be grateful. And I, the other, you know, moment of clarity that came to me in, in also in Tarawiyah is I've just been really focused on what the Sheikh shared with us last khutbah about, you know, where will we be, or maybe it was two khutbahs ago, where will we be next Ramadan? And, you know, that like coupled with, um, we had a, a reflection, um, which I, I mentioned a couple of, of sessions ago, where the Sheikh told us to imagine ourselves dead, like, right is this moment and you're confronting God and, and you know thinking about what are you going to ask God um, or what is the sin that you're most worried about and conversely what is the good thing that you've done in your life that you would put forward first to argue for God to have mercy and forgiveness on you 
and we didn't do well in that assignment. We wrote down the answer, it was handed back to us like we were in class and we were told, you know, you guys really have not thought about that. You need to go back and think about it. And in that moment of clarity that I had during, you know, the, my prayers, just like, okay, I wanna think about that, not even just for myself, but like for my parents. You know, like I decided that I was going to tell myself, my parents are not gonna be here next Ramadan. How does that change how I treat them now? and what I do and how much time I give them. Because, you know, everybody, you know, when you're speeding through life, you just imagine there will be another opportunity, another time. If I don't get to it today, there will be tomorrow. And we just don't know that that's true. So I'm grateful for these moments of clarity and, you know, and also to think about ourselves. Where will we be? What if, what if today, what if this is our last Ramadan? You know, what does that mean? And how does that put things into perspective about all the petty grievances you might have or the irritations or, Things that, you know, you, when you spend your time thinking about the things that bother you as opposed to the things that you're actually really grateful for, I think that's a really important thing to, to remember. So just to share that reflection. Um, and I, I hope that everyone is having a blessed Ramadan and that, um, you know, you have the moments of clarity that, that God sends you because I really believe that those are such gifts that come at different times when you least expect them. And if you don't take the opportunity to really reflect on them, then that's a gift that's wasted. So... Thank you, and looking forward to an amazing session. Surah al-Jinn. I'm hoping, we're, we're ex expecting a lot of good jinn stories. <laughs> okay. No, no jinn stories, sorry. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa subhanallah al-Aliyil Azim. والصلاه والسلام على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه ومن تبعوا باحسان الى يوم الدين ومشح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب as is now our established method methodology, we need to situate the surah um, I don't always, I mean most of the time I don't know why we're covering the particular surah that we're covering at the time we're covering it. So I pray that the learning that comes from the surah will reverberate and will have an impact upon people, whether they're present with us or not present with us uh, at this time. Uh, because Surah Al-Jinn itself carries this message forward, and it takes you out of the bounds of time and space and it forces you to um, to have a a level of, of wisdom uh, in the way that you understand your own actions um, and also the actions of others uh, at a particular time and moment. Uh, 
And subhanAllah, it just occurred to me, uh, I hadn't thought of this before, but it just occurred to me that in Surah Al-Naml, in many ways, Surah Al-Naml is the praise of the insignificant, or what appears to us as insignificant. Uh, you cannot have any large achievements, any huge achievements that are not preceded by simply countless numbers of ants doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, there is no Moses without Adam, and there is no Sulaiman without Moses. And indeed, there is no Muhammad without Sulaiman. Everything is interconnected. And the important thing is that you do your obligation, your duty, um, your taklif, and leave the rest to Allah. But it occurred to me that, as I said, it just occurred to me that, well, Surah Al-Jinn, um, in many ways, affirms what Surah Al-Naman has to say. Uh, but Surah Al-Jinn takes you maybe a step further in that it tells you that there is so much that occurs in the world of the ghaib. There is so much that occurs in the world of the unseen. And we will we'll, um, vet this out as we go, inshallah, through the surah. But you being an ant, you being an ant, just because you don't see the world of the ghaib, it is a fatal flaw to believe that the ghaib does not exist or that what you do in your temporal space does not reverberate throughout. So Surah Al-Jinn is clearly a Meccan Surah that's clearly established. Um, it is revealed, in many reports say that it was revealed after Surah Al-A'raf, which we have not covered. Um, it was revealed after Surah Al-Tariq, which we did cover, after Surah Sad, which we did cover, Surah Qaf, we did cover. Um, we haven't covered the Qamar, right? So it was revealed after Qamar, which we have not covered. But it, it, there are cumulative reports that it came right after Al-Araf. And the 
probability of reports, meaning more than 50% of the reports, not, not, uh, um, uh, not exclusively so, but, you know, maybe 70% of the, of, of the reports say that it was revealed right before Surah Yasin. So that would also mean then it was revealed before, if it was revealed right before Surat Yasin, then it was revealed before Surat Al-Furqan, which we did cover, Surat Fatir, which we did cover, and so on. Uh, that would also obviously be before Surat Maryam, Taha, Al-Dukhan, Al-Shu'ara, Al-Naml. Um, but there are competing reports as to whether in fact it was um, put it this way whether it belonged to the sword that were revealed after the death of the prophet's uncle and after the death of his wife or whether it was revealed shortly before. Now as we will see this actually makes a difference. It makes a difference as to the message of the surah um, and I will tell you what, what my research at least convinces me of. Um, okay, so we have two main groups of reports as to when this surah is revealed, right? So some reports tell us that it was revealed before, but shortly before, the passing away of Khadijah and the passing away of the uh, of the prophet's uncle Abu Talib, and in these set of reports, it is said that the prophet والسلام, was in Mecca. Um, Uh, yeah, he was in Mecca, and he was there. He, he was in um, um, in Souq Oqaz, the um, the market, one of the market major marketplaces in Mecca, and uh, he stood to pray in the market of Oqaz in Souq Oqaz, and that uh, he recited. In prayer, Surat Iqra. And that the jinn, a group of jinn, in the tradition you even have reports as to the names of these jinn. You have like sources that tell you these jinn were named XYZ. But um, the traditions naming the jinn are not very reliable, so I'm not going to, to 
bother with them. They're, they're not of a very high degree of authenticity. And that the jinn overhears the Prophet ﷺ reciting Surat Iqra uh, in Sukhaqaz, in the market of Aqaz, in Mecca, shortly before the uncle's Prophet passes away and Khadija passes away a few months before, and that the Prophet ﷺ is not aware at the time of the presence of these jinn, uh, who overhear his recitation of um, Surat Ikhra. And then Surat Jinn is revealed to tell the Prophet about the jinn being present and hearing the Quranic message. So that's one narrative. The second narrative is that after the death of Abu Talib and after the death of Khadija, the, pro the persecution, if you recall, as we said, that after Abu Talib, the Prophet's uncle, passes away, the Prophet then loses his main protector, and after Khadija passes away, the Prophet's heart is broken, and it is, and leave alone the death of his son, uh, because the, the Ali Sallallahu had a number of sons who all passed away very young, but. Uh, I believe it was of Qasim, his son of Qasim, who had passed away. And then Khadija dies shortly after. And it is a very, very difficult time for the, for the Prophet He is going through an enormous amount of um, trauma. Uh, the persecution of the Meccans against Muslims becomes unbearable. There is even... A, a, a boycott so Muslims are starving to death not just being jailed and tortured and, and some of them killed and so on and at that point the Prophet ﷺ reaches out to a people who he is related to through his mother and that's the city of a Ta'if. A Ta'if is close to Mecca, but it is um, not, it's a, it's a commercial center, but it is not as wealthy as Mecca and not as powerful as Mecca. But the Prophet ﷺ, because of this maternal relationship, he thinks, well, you know, maybe a Ta'if would take, provide asylum to Muslims, to, to protect Muslims who are in desperate need to escape the persecution. And so he travels with um, Zayd ibn Harith to Al-Ta'if 
and speaks to the elders of the, of the Ta'if, and their reaction is horrible. Not only do they say no, but they mock him, and uh, uh, the mockery eventually deteriorates into violence. They, in fact, uh, physically assault him, um, him and Al-Harith. Um, Zayd ibn al-Harith, and they even chase him out of a ta'if with children throwing rocks at them, and the Prophet and Zayd are bloodied, and they stop, they, they escape the stoning and the, the jeering and the laughing and the uh, insults and so on, and they stop at a place called Nakhla. And Nakhla is a, a, a sort of in the outskirts of um, of a thought. And this Nakhla place becomes important for two reasons. One is that the Prophet, him and Zaid, stand up to pray, although bloody and bruised and all of that. They uh, stand up to pray and the Prophet recites Surah Al-Rahman, which we've covered as well as Iqra, obviously. So he stands up to and in prayer and he recites Surah Al-Rahman. And that's when the jinn, that's the Surah that the jinn over here, and that's when this incident of the jinn overhearing the Qur'an. And again, the Prophet ﷺ is not aware that they overhear the Qur'an, but is told by Allah about it afterwards. And significantly, at this Nakhla place, the Prophet ﷺ meets a person who's going to be very, very, very important for Islam in the future. He meets um, Salman al-Farisi. Salman at the time, Salman had started out as Persian nobility. He was Zoroastrian. But he was uh, preoccupied with the search for truth. And attempting to search for the truth, he travels in several places. He travels to, in some reports, to, he travels to Iraq, and he travels to Syria, and he travels to Arabia, and he sits with Jewish scholars and considers Judaism for a while, then he sits with Christian scholars, considers Christianity for a while. There are some even reports that he converted to Christianity for a period of time. But Eventually, Salman falls prey to um, highway robbers who capture him and sell him into slavery. And so at the time, Salman is, a ta is in a ta'if as a slave. And although he was born free and he is Persian nobility, but he ended up being sold into slavery and ended up in a ta'if, but 
Arab Ta'if, he comes upon the Prophet um, in this place, Nakhla, and when he hears the Quran, Salman realizes that this is the truth that he has been searching for. And although a slave, he converts to Islam, which puts him, of course, in a clashing course with his owner, eventually Salman will be able to buy his freedom uh, and join the Prophet in Medina, and he will play a very significant role in Islamic history, and he becomes one of the most prominent companions. Okay. Now, between these two stories, I am convinced that the narrative about, let's call it the Nakhla narrative, where the Prophet travels to Ta'if and, and uh, everything we've talked about, rather than the Uqaz narrative, where the Prophet is reading Surah Iqra at the market in Uqaz, uh, I'm convinced that it is the the the, the Ta'if Nakhla narrative is the one that is actually the occasion for the revelation of the Surah. Yeah, it took me a very long time to research, you know, everything I can find on um, the various narrations and who narrated what and um, who classified what narration as what level of authenticity, you know, what narrations have missing links, what narrations have gaps, what a, a long, long story, but at the end of it, at least I am satisfied that it is the thought if um, Nakhla narrative that is the authentic one as an occasion for revelation. Yes, probably the Prophet did read um, Surat Iqra and Uqaz, but that's I don't think had anything to do with the revelation of Surat Jinn. And you might wonder, well, you know, is it worth spending all this time to research um, the correct occasion? And as you'll see, yeah, it's worth it because it actually tells us a lot about the surah. Okay, so it starts out, there is no introduction of um, separated letters. It doesn't start out affirming or with an affirmative statement about the Quran itself or revelation, but it gets to the point right away as if it has something urgent to tell the Prophet. And what it tells him, if you are living at the time of the Prophet and receiving the Quranic revelation, hearing it for the first time from the Prophet, it tells them something very surprising. And rather um, jarring. 
قل أوحي إلي أنه استمع نفر من الجن فقالوا إنا سمعنا قرآنا عجبا يهدي إلى الرشد فآمنا به ولن نشرك بربنا أحدا وأنه تعالى جد ربنا ما اتخذ صاحبة ولا ولدا وأنه كان يقول سفيهنا على الله شططا وأنا ظننا أن لن تقولوا أن لن تقول الإنس والجن على الله كذبا So say O Muhammad say it was revealed to me say say to to who say to everyone so it becomes a part of what you are actually going to be telling people and what are you going to be telling people you're going to be telling people it was revealed to me that there are jinn who heard the Quran and that these jinn said in response to hearing the Quran we have heard something truly wondrous most likely as we said what they heard was surah al-rahman but we've heard something truly wondrous and when we heard this we realized that it is impossible that our Lord, that God subhanahu wa ta'ala, has ever taken, an, has, there's ever an equal to God, a companion to God, or a child to God. So we were aware of Judaism and in the Torah, there are individuals who are able to speak to God in ways as equals, and even to wrestle with God, and even to hold God and, and sort of uh, restrain God, and order God to bless them, and with Christianity, the whole thing about God's Son, who is divine and who is begotten from God or by God or whatever. But we realize that this is nonsense. And in fact, Safihuna, which literally would be translates as the idiot among us. Safih is 
So we want to see how they translated it. Oh, they said fool. The study Quran says fool among us. Yeah. The, the idiot among us, the fool among us, have told us things that were just right out wrong about God. And why were we fooled? Well, because we didn't suspect that human beings or jinn would lie about God. So, again, go back to the historical period and understand it in context. This is a very difficult time for the Prophet this is a time of rejection and denial and persecution. And the Prophet ﷺ just went through the trauma of, of course, first the hopes of finding help and aid in a ta'if. But it turned out horribly. And the Prophet and Zayd are assaulted and insulted and just in a horrible state. And their response is to, as soon as they bandaged their weapons sufficiently, is to stand up and pray. And as you know, reciting Surah Al-Rahman in prayer, it's a long surah. So, that's the response. And at that point of utter desperation, they will meet someone that was truly unexpected, a slave. Nothing but a slave boy. And a non-Arab at that. A slave who's a foreigner. Arabic to him is a second language, second-hand language. His first language is Persian. But typical of the Prophet, he invests in this man as if he is the nobility in Ta'if, or the nobility in Mecca. And this man becomes Muslim, and what the Prophet doesn't know at this low point is that this man will be determined to earn his freedom and will join the Prophet and will become a huge asset to Islam. But that's all in the future. You invested in the weakest of the weak. And what you got is a 
golden gift from Allah. But there is another element that is fascinating, right? That we notice right away. The Prophet has met with utter failure. And the message in Surah Jinn is has a duality to it. So first you know that when the Prophet starts reciting the Surah and the Meccans hear about the failure at the Ta'if, which for sure they're going to hear about it, and they did hear about it, and they're going to hear that now Muhammad is claiming that it is the jinn who were very impressed by his Qur'an. That's a test of resilience and strength for the Prophet. And a test and resilience and strength for his followers. If the Prophet was just a, a, a cunning diplomat, a political man, it's the worst move. At the time you are in the in, in the absolute bottom pit, you're going to claim that, well, you know, yeah, I wasn't able to get you Meccans to believe in me, and I couldn't get the people of Ta'if to believe in me, but guess what? Jinn believe in me. Absolute mockery. And that's exactly what happens. But then the other part to it, which is remarkable, is that at this point, we know the Prophet loved his uncle very dearly and hoped his uncle would become Muslim up to the last minute. Khadija was his soulmate. And he continued to speak of Khadija as a saint till the end of his life. She was his partner, she was his soulmate. When she died, everything changed. And now, he sees all his followers being persecuted and he can't help them. And because of the persecution, there are no converts, no new converts to the faith. There are people that are leaving the faith because of the persecution, but there are no people joining the faith because of the persecution. And he goes to Ta'if 
And it is a miserable failure except for this one slave boy, Salman al-Farisi. He doesn't realize at the time that he has a conversation with Salman what Salman will do for Islam. But at that point, instead of Allah coming and telling him, don't worry, Allah will make you victorious, or don't worry, you will get the upper hand, Allah will vanquish your enemies for you. Allah tells him what? Allah tells him, Muhammad, you don't know this, but there are jinn who overheard you and became Muslim. And when they became Muslim, for these jinn, because jinn live very different lifespans and hours, for these jinn, centuries of confusion were resolved. For these jinn who had heard their the reports differ as to whether they heard shaitan or whether they heard shaitan, kids of shaitan, children of shaitan. It doesn't matter. But anyway, that they heard other jinn tell them, well, yeah, we, we know about this God. We're older than you. We've been around longer. And this God does have mates. And this God does have children. And this God does have the, the angels, as the Arabs used to, some Arabs used to say, that the malaika, the angels, are God's daughters, or that there are God's concubines, or whatever. And they believed them for centuries. And then they come upon Muhammad, and everything changes for them. The message I submit to you, years of research has completely convinced me of this, and I'll, I'll talk to you more about why. As if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is coming at the slowest point and saying, you, Muhammad, don't have the full picture. You might even think all hope has dried up. There are no further venues to explore. But the part of the picture that you cannot understand is the ghaib, the unseen, the world of the unseen. You don't know that what you do could have, could do good, even if not in your immediate world, in the dimension in which you live, then it could have consequences in other dimensions. The message was clear. To the Prophet and to the followers of the Prophet. 
job is to do what's right, not to despair about the consequences. Put, put differently, after Surah Al-Jinn, The Prophet ﷺ was asked, if I am in the desert and time for prayer comes, do I, I do the azan or not do the azan? And the Prophet ﷺ said, do the azan for just doing the azan, even if no one is around, you will be rewarded for it. And in the commentaries on this hadith, he talked at length about it might be that the jinn would hear the azan. If you need to, if there is an obligation upon you to speak the word of truth, speak it, even if no one hears it. Write it, even if no one reads it. Your job is to do what is right. The world of the future, which is part of the unknown, part of the un of Ghaib, and the unseen is not your business. You simply do not know Be an ant, but be an honorable and and be an honorable ant and a proudful ant. Be proud of the job you're doing. <laughs> وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ رِجَالٌ مِنَ الْإِنْسِ يَعُوذُونَ بِرِجَالٍ مِنَ الْجِنِّ فَزَادُوهُمْ رَهَقًا وَأَنَّهُمْ ظَنُّوا كَمَا ظَنَنْتُمْ أَنْ لَنْ يَبْعَثَ اللَّهُ أَحَدًا وَأَنَّا لَمَسْنَا السَّمَاءَ فَوَجَدْنَاهَا مُلِئَتْ حَرَسًا شَدِيدًا وَشُهُبًا وَأَنَّا كُنَّا نَقْعُدُ مِنْهَا مَقَاعِدَ لِلسَّمَعَ فمن يستمع الآن يجد له شهابا رصدا So the surah continues telling the Prophet عليه الصلاة والسلام paraphrasing in general terms what the reaction of the jinn to hearing the Quranic message is. But what's interesting is that stylistically the way the language is in Surah Al-Jinn 
stylistically, it's as if it is in part communicating to the Prophet ﷺ what the jinn who responded positively to the Quranic message said, but at the same time, what what it quotes on behalf of the jinn is really intended as a message to human beings who are receiving the Quranic message. So, after in five that we were misled because we thought that whether it was shaitan or or from shaitan or whatever who told them untrue things about god then they start saying things that are seem to be lessons to human beings rather than strict quotes so for instance, when we start getting into six, that there were men, human beings, who would seek the assistance of jinn or seek refuge in jinn, and the results of this relationship didn't end well for these men, they, 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 they oppressed them. Now, Zadum Raqqa could have many different meanings. It could mean that they misled them astray. It could mean that they made them dependent on them. It could mean that they dominated and oppressed them. It, it could even mean that they made them ill and sick. Zadum Raqqa could carry numerous meanings, all negative. And they thought, here referring to the, to, um, it's, it could be referring to the jinn who thought, or it could be referring to the men who thought, or the, the people who thought the, the help of the jinn. They thought as you thought, that God is not going to send any further messengers. Now, who's the you here? Well, obviously, it's not the prophet, and it's not... Zaid, and it's not anyone who believes in the Prophet, but as you thought, suddenly now it's talking to if those who don't follow the Prophet, as you thought, that God is not going to send anyone else. And then this most fascinating verses 
and that we have reached out to the heavens and we found that it was guarded. There were sentries protecting the heavens. And that we used to be able to eavesdrop on al-mala al-ala, on the heavens. But that now our ability to eavesdrop has been restricted. We are chased by um, meteorites or comets or flaming stars or whatever it is. Uh, and also angels protecting this realm. Now here we come to actually an important point, theological point. First, about the relationship between human beings and jinn. If you read in the history of magic, it, I'm, at least I am convinced that Jinn and human beings interacted often what descended into really awful things like human sacrifice and um, and that certain civilizations like civilizations in Iraq for instance and certain civilizations in South America this sort of occult relationship um, were developed into truly terrifying levels. And especially when it descended into some grotesque things like sacrificing children, sacrificing women, a lot of blood sacrifices, and so on. And so that reference in the in the Quran that human beings used to there were human beings that would seek the refuge or seek the help of jinn, and it didn't end well for human beings. A lot of the Quranic commentators tell you that well the Arabs used before Islam when they would go to a valley or they would go to a mountainous area. And then they would pray that, uh, that to the jinn of that valley to protect them. They would say, oh, you know, king of this valley, you know, please protect me or something like that. But I think that this Quranic verse is referring to much, much more than that. Why? Because of my research in the history of magic and in the history of the occult. And that the role of the supernatural or the, the, the role of occult practices were a much bigger part of human history than 
we moderns like to think. And in fact, even, even uh, modernity still used a lot of occult practices, but you know, we, we buried it underground, so we just don't like to talk about it. But, but there is a new phase Humanity enters in a new phase with the prophecy of Muhammad This is again consistent with the theology, the end of the age of miracles and the end of the age of Khark al-Ada or the, 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 the rely on, on the accessibility of the paranormal. A new phase with the Quranic revelation, a phase of rationality starts in human history. And part of this phase is referenced right there in Surah Al-Jinn. In that, why did Jinn eavesdrop? Well, all the sources tell us that the reason that Jinn would eavesdrop is that they would find out a little bit of knowledge about the ghaib, a little bit of knowledge about whatever human beings do not know. And that they would go to soothsayers or go to um, witches and warlocks and, um, um, and they would give them a little bit of truth mixed in with a lot of lies. And uh, then, of course, these witches and warlocks, they would exaggerate, they would put their own spin as well. But that all these relations would end up not well for human beings. Eventually, the dynamic between the occultist and the jinn would end up being exploitative. And that's very consistent with what we know about a lot of ancient cultures and their occult practices and the, the role of magic and the role of superstition. But that when Muhammad's prophecy begins, things get tightened up because the world of magic, the terms for the world of magic and the world of the paranormal and the world of miracles and Khark al-Ada enters a new phase altogether. So there is even in, you know, but not very reliable reports, but nevertheless, I mean, not reliable doesn't mean that they're not necessarily authentic. It just means we don't, we can't say, we don't know, we can't vouch for their authenticity. It might, an unreliable report might still be authentic. We don't know. But there are a lot of these reports that say that um, the jinn, especially the jinn who do the eavesdropping, they go to Satan and they complain to Satan that things have changed. We are unable to get the type of information that we used to be able to get. Uh, what's going on? 
And that Satan then says, well, let me find out. And then there are different reports as what Satan does. Some, some reports say that Satan uh, smells the, the, the soil from different parts of the world. Other reports say that Satan goes around the, the earth. And anyway, but Satan finds out that the prophecy of Muhammad has begun. And that Satan is livid about this. And he says to his followers, well, yes, we can't eavesdrop in the way we used to, but I will still be able to give you some information that you can spin so we can keep humans connected to us. Now here I will digress a bit and talk about the world of the paranormal a little. Now, of course, before I forget, Razi, for instance, talks about um, that in the at the time of the Prophet or shortly before the Prophet comes, that there used to be a very famous occultist in Arabia. Um, his name was, um, or no, there were two, two a fellow called Shaka and another called Sutiha. And that they were, their fame had spread, you find a lot of references to them in pre-Islamic poetry. And um, uh, uh, that they even, the, their fame was such that they were even invited to the Byzantine Empire to meet with the Byzantine Emperor um, to, to have a, a, a session with him. Um, and uh, both Shaka and Sultih are actually referenced a lot in pre-Islamic poetry. And, and they're, they're often mentioned as the golden standard in, in the occult practices. Uh, but also Razi talks about, um, um, A witch in a sorcerer in Iraq. Um, I can't remember her name. But anyway, that she she was of such fame that uh, Sultan Sinjar bin um, Malik Shah. Uh, one of the famous emperors of uh, Persia invites her to her, his court and she becomes a very important but if you there aren't many books written about the history of occult in the uh, Muslim world um, not modern studies, historical studies 
But there are a lot of works written about the history of the occult in the Greek world, in the Roman world, in the uh, medieval European world. And um, you, it, it's, it's difficult to communicate how pervasive these practices were unless you read this material yourself. Okay, anyway, so in the Islamic tradition, when it comes to jinn, there is generally, there are those that are described as an arwah al-sufliya and those that are described as an arwah al-falakiyya. Arwah sufliya means um, uh, earthbound spirits and arwah falakiyya are not earthbound spirits. And they exist like us they have tribes, they have groups, they follow different systems of belief. According to a lot of Muslim sources, some of them even are Muslim, some of them are Christian, some of them are Jewish, some of them are Zoroastrian, some of them are whatever. Some sources say something that I don't believe, uh, that they even break down to um, literalists and non-literalists and you know, I don't know, maybe they have Wahhabis, maybe they have Shia and Sunnah, I don't know. Uh, that that part I'm not, you know, I, I've just made up. Uh, they, they have Wahhabis and stuff like that. Wahhabis and Sufis. And, um, uh, but anyway, they, they are very diverse. And those of them that will deal with human beings although there is some disagreement among Islamic sources about this, some Islamic sources say that pious jinn could deal with human beings to help them for um, godly purposes. So according to these sources, that a pious jinn, um, for instance, could find that you are a scholar of the Qur'an and they love the Qur'an so they could manifest to you to study the Qur'an with you. Uh, I don't accept that part of the tradition. The part that I do accept is that the pious jinn don't contact human beings because they are ordered by God to stay away from human beings that after the prophecy of Muhammad the command was clear. You are no longer to interact with human beings. And that those who continue to interact with human beings are not devout. That they're evil. I mean, they're basically followers of Satan. And that it is possible. And if you read enough in the occult, not that I'm telling you to do it because it's very dangerous and I don't want you to, uh, you know, if you read in the occult, you could end up inviting 
an unwelcome presence in your home. Uh, you could read in the occult, you could end up having a shadow man appear in your home, you could end up, um, yeah, you, you could end up with a lot of unpleasant things. Um, but if you did, and if you were if you were trained and equipped to do it, in other words, you knew how to protect yourself, or, or if you read in the occult academically, scholarly, in other words, not read the 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 uh, black magic, but read from a scholarly perspective, which you know is, is okay, that's not a problem. Um, yeah, the, 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 there's no question that that world of the paranormal exists. And not only that, but that we human beings have developed technologies where we are able to capture parts of the paranormal in ways that our ancestors couldn't catch. We can record the voices. We have now cameras that sees in spectrum of lights where it can capture shadow men or shadow people or whatever. Um, we're able to do that. But the part that we are not good about is understanding what the heck we're capturing. When i not reading or not praying, I watch paranormal shows. And I'm always amazed at paranormal shows because they capture stuff that is legitimate. I can tell when it's legitimate or not legitimate. For instance, they often capture EVPs that say, help me, or get out. The two most common things, help me and get out. But these ghost hunters or ghost busters or ghost adventurers or ghost brothers or ghost whatever don't understand what they're capturing. So the interpretation is always fantastical and ridiculous. And that's because, again, they are like Wahhabis. They don't have any use for scholarship or tradition or study. They don't study the accumulated wisdom of generations of sages who have written about this. They think they can just capture it and interpret it on the fly. Exactly what Wahhabis do. And that's why it's so absurd and it's so ridiculous. Well, I'm saying this to say, stay away from it. Don't capture EVPs. Don't go ghost hunting. Don't try to film this stuff. Don't try to interact with any of it. Because exactly what the Quran warns us about, is what is going to happen to you. Is it possible you become possessed? Absolutely. Possession has a long history and that's a long conversation. Is it possible that your home becomes haunted? Absolutely. Is it possible that you would get an oppressive presence in your home that changes your character and your personality and the personality of your family that would destroy your home, would destroy your marriage? Absolutely. Is it possible that you would invite a presence that would make you an addict, an alcoholic? Absolutely. All of that. فَزَادُوهُمْ رَهَقًا 
it is among, it's not the only warning, but among the strongest warnings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about the paranormal world, and it saddens me, if you go on Amazon and you do a search on any of the grimoire books, grimoire, the books of black magic, like the solemn, you know, the solemn, any of the books that uh, talk about the Solomonic key, the the attributed language to Sulaiman salam, which he communicated, he used to communicate with Jinn. And you find all these reviews. I mean, they're, they're you know, like, like um, bestsellers. This stuff is very dangerous. It, it amazes me that kids just buy this stuff and read spells and read the, and, and there is no guidance from the church which is you know is so eager to be modern and rational and to divorce its um you know its superstitious history so very little guidance are given to these poor kids from churches Judaism does a little bit better because you, there are rabbis that are well known that can give you advice on occult things, but and their advice is usually exactly like the Islamic advice: don't get involved, and if you do, you know they they try to help you, but still, it's not. Uh, I mean, it's very limited because most rabbinic authorities have joined onto the bandwagon of modernity and rationalism and anti-superstition and all of that. And leave alone the Islamic stuff. The Islamic stuff, most of those who, there are books, by the way, in English that you'll find about jinn and stuff like that. And most of it is absolutely useless. I mean, it, it just... These people think they can just open up Bukhari, read a few hadiths about jinn, and write a book advising people about jinn. It's absolutely useless. Um, there's a book about uh, jinn and aliens, uh, not immigration aliens, but aliens from outer space. Um, uh, you know, again, it, it was written by, I think, an engineer, a computer scientist or something, and, you know, shooting from the hip. Um, the problem in the Muslim world is that because we are so backwards civilizationally, we are eager to catch up with the modern world. And the modern world has become advanced by relying on rational sciences, not on superstition. And superstition still has a grip upon the imagination of so many in the Muslim world, but it is of the worst type of superstition, meaning not anything based in, on any real learning, but all just superstition um, where People make money off people by selling them a bunch of nonsense. And as a result, um, 
so many of Muslim, the modern Muslim theologians have been very eager to join on the Christian and Jewish thing of denying the existence of the occult altogether. And that's fine, except that when kids uh, meddle with the occult and they open up portals and all hell breaks out, getting help is very difficult because most of the people that are active in the Muslim scene are, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, chisers? Charlatans? Charlatans? Charlatans. Most of them are charlatans and absolutely have no clue what they're doing. Um, and they do it for money. A real person who does it for real things it will not charge. If you have to pay someone, then they're probably charlatan. And anyone that comes and tells you, I'm going to burn the gin out of you, or I'm going to beat the gin out of you, or I'm going to insult the gin out of you, is a charlatan. Um, it, it, that has nothing to do with anything authentic. Um, the, the, you don't get gin out, out of your toe. Anyone that tells you I'm going to get the gin out of your toe or out of your thumb uh, is a charlatan. Uh, I mean, I could go on, but it, it, is, it is remarkable that, at, again, in the Mecca period, at this stage in the Muhammadian message, that at the lowest point of the Prophet's mission in Mecca, Allah elevates the Prophet but by telling him something of cosmic proportions. And the thing that he tells him of cosmic proportions is that humanity has entered a new phase. And it is a phase in which reliance on magic and the occult is a thing of the past. I, told, I said, I think I mentioned before in one of these Holocausts that Nazis were, were master occultists. Um, there is a remarkable correlation between occult practices and evil um, in modernity. Um, I mean, that's another topic for another day, but even a lot of the people who produce the market theories that reduce human beings into nothing but machines were themselves occultists. I mean, they, they were respected professors and ministers and scientists in the day and at night they belonged to these lodges where they would um, indulge in, in, the, in the fun of occult practices, which they, they did probably out of entertainment, but, but it is, you, can't ha you can't entertain yourself with the occult. If you open that door, it's darkness. You, you, there, 
there is no such thing as you are inviting the spirits of a loved dead one or um, you know benevolent spirits or friendly spirits or um, there is a show called kindred spirits I mean the people who present that show are very well intentioned but they're idiots they have just no clue and their advice after they go to every home Oh, you have, you know, your grandfather loves you and, uh, you know, looking after you. And it is the worst possible advice you can give someone. Okay. You know what's going to happen after this, right? <laughs> the Islamophobes are going to say the distinguished law professor at the University of UCLA talks about the occult and ghosts and yeah so what okay fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> what's real is real whether you want to admit it or not okay so let me make sure I'm not forgetting anything Yeah. One of the uh, the points, theological points that um, I like very much, um, I know Ibn Ajiba makes it, but it's made in a lot of Sufi-esque tafsir, um, which is a, a, a irrational point, um, that... If Allah protects al al-ala or the, the the realm of the divine of the eavesdropping of devils, Allah has repeatedly assured us in the Quran that if you turn to Allah, if you turn to Allah, Allah protects those who turn to Allah from the effects of the shayateen. I mean, are you guys hearing yeah, something? Yeah, I, I can't. Oh, what is that? I think it's an ice cream truck. Oh, there's an ice cream truck. When has an ice cream truck ever come oh. out? Oh. It's never. It's I know. weird that yeah, I'm exactly. thinking everything has been <laughs> Is there ice cream trucks here? No, they never come yeah. here. This is the first time. Have you ever heard of one? We should day. stop the ice cream truck and ask them if there is gin. I think there is. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it is the first hot day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank oh. you. Rationality. Need your rationality. <laughs> 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 um, okay, let's go back to the Najibas. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the other thing that um, I, I forgot to mention is um, when the when in Surah Jinn it tells the Prophet والسلام, that on behalf of the quoting the Jinn that they said we believe that no one would lie about God in the way that. Uh, uh, Al-Razi 
comments on this and says, you see the sin that the jinn, the trap that the jinn fell in is that, is the moral trap of taqlid, of imitation. That instead of uh, searching for the truth themselves, they relied on received authority. And Razi says this again is further proof of the damage that non-thinking imitation can cause. Um, it's a it's an interesting point um, that he even sees this as an he sees imitation as an ethical failure, blind imitation, and it's an ethical failure whether it is done by jinn or done by human beings. So after paraphrasing the jinn, the jinn say that. There were those human beings who thought the refuge or the help or the assistance of jinn, it would end badly for them. And after acknowledging that they have entered a new phase for humanity, they affirmed the idea they say, we don't know why things were tightened up in in the high heavens. We don't know what God's plan is for human beings. And the way that they express it is, we don't know if Something good is being planned for human beings or something bad is being planned for human beings. Which is a very interesting comment. Um, but then, as if the Quran is telling us something about jinn. Some of us are good ethical and some of us are not and qidada means that we are diverse as diverse as human beings are or even more i don't know but that we follow different pathways we are not the same This is uh, verse 12. The study Quran says, we are on paths divided. I would translate it as we are on diverse paths or we're very diverse, not just divided. Um, And then, that 
when we they say we now they're talking about those who responded to the Quranic message. They're not talking about all of jinn. But we say, but we acknowledge that the mastery of God and that there is no way of escaping the sovereignty of God. Nu'ajizahu means that we, we, there is, you can't evade God's authority. And that is why that when we heard the truth, so this is now uh, 14. So that is why when we heard the truth, We believed. And we know that those of us who believe, they have nothing to fear. That some of us are Muslim, but note, note, the, the the shift in the time tense because the, it starts out by saying Surah Jinn starts out by saying to you that there are some jinn that heard the Quran and said we've heard the wondrous thing but then by verse 13 it seems to be talking about something beyond time because it tells you some of us are Muslim and some of us are unjust. Qasitun even could mean bad, evil. Is it talking about this group of jinn, those supposedly nine or fifteen jinn that heard the Quran? Not the way that the language is phrased. The way that the language is phrased it is as if telling you about something about jinn that is well into the future or beyond time. Um, just if you're for your if you're interested in in Arabic, it's really interesting that al al is an unjust and muqsit is just the, the mean makes all the difference like if you say uh, terib means um, someone who's poor if you say mutrib just the mean it means someone who's rich for, for those of you who are studying Arabic it just the 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 mean can at the beginning of the word can sometimes in certain situations shift the meaning of the word to the exact opposite. So some of us are indeed Muslim, 
and some of us are gone astray or even evil. And now, when they say, Those who are evil are going to become in the fire of heaven. And then it says, وَلَوْ أَسْتَقَامُوا عَلَى الطَّرِيقَةِ لَأَسْقَيْنَاهُمْ مَاءً غَدَقًا If they would have followed the straight path, we would have given them great reward. Who's talking here? It's not the jinn who's talking anymore. Do, do you see, it's like Surat Jinn in style. It's like a transcendental experience beyond time, beyond space. It starts out with a single incident, but then takes you to a cosmic view. وَلَوْ اسْتَقَامُوا عَلَى الطَّرِيقَةِ لَأَسْقَيْنَاهُمْ مَاءً غَدَقًا لِنَفْتِنَهُمْ فِيهِ وَمَنْ يُعْرِضْ عَنْ ذِكْرِ رَبِّهِ يُسْلِكُ عَزَابًا صَعِدًا صَعِدًا or صَعِدًا in different Quran. Um, let's see how they... Okay, so... And whoever holds firm to the straight path, we, God, will give them an abundant water. But then it comments on that so that we may try them. And whoever turns away from the remembrance of their, of their Lord, they will receive a punishment. So you pause here and you say, okay, wait. Give water to the gym and the, it's to test them. Omar ibn al-Khattab commented on this, these verses by saying, Water is a symbol for goodness. And goodness is a symbol in human minds in, for wealth. And wealth is nothing but a fitna. So, Again, that, that sort of transcendental, timeless quality. At the same time that it came and it told, tells you, it's as if saying, if they would have, if you see the truth, there would be good. But remember, whenever there is good, 
there's a test. Because whenever you receive good, yes, it's a blessing, but you're also being tested. وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ فَلَا تَدْعُوا مَعَ اللَّهِ أَحَدًا وَأَنَّهُ لَمَّا قَامَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ يَدْعُوهُ كَادُوا يَكُونُونَ عَلَيْهِ لِبَدًا قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَدْعُوا رَبِّي وَلَا أُشْرِكُ بِهِ أَحَدًا قُلْ إني لا أملك لكم ضرا ولا رشدا قل إني لن يجيرني من الله أحد ولن أجد من دونه ملتحدا So then it right after من يعرض عن ذكر ربه that who as the response to a fitna, a test, is to forget the remembrance of their Lord. And that's exactly how we respond often to good things. Our remembrance of God goes down. It, it, is, it is a proven reality throughout human history. Hardship, if you're a believer, hardship, you remember God a lot. Is, eh, you know, you remember God less. How much less? Well, it depends on the person. But right after that, then the comment about إِنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ So again, this sort of cosmic transcendental quality who's speaking here and why would the jinn be saying anything about masajid are they talking about mosques well there are two possibilities the possibility of masajid means all prostration belongs to Allah and any prostration not for Allah is wrong. That's one interpretation. Second interpretation is to say, know that space it can be designated for Allah's worship. And wherever space is designated for Allah's worship, Any corruption of this, the, the purity of prostration is wrong. But as so many theologians commented on this by saying, there is a hadith where the Prophet says the earth was made a masjid for me. The entire earth was made a mosque. So both perspectives take us back to the issue of prostration. What I think 
Remember Surah Tijin, at the slowest point in the Prophet's life, it's telling him, you know what? Yeah, I know you're going through a very hard time, but this is a new cosmic moment. A new cosmic moment well beyond you, well beyond Zayd, well beyond Suleiman al-Farisi, well beyond Adas, the other slave boy, well beyond all of that. In the same way, it makes sense for at this point to say, we know from occult practices that human, human beings engaged in, that human beings sacrificed a lot of lives for things other than God. They sacrificed animals and sacrificed humans, which Islam forbids. I mean, all sacrifices other for God, meaning, well, you don't sacrifice for God, I mean, except uh, the thing what you do in Hajj, but that's not a sacrifice for God either. But anyway, but the second thing is that they would, other than sacrifice, there were in, in prostration for kings, queens, lords, divine beings. What was the thing that Islam gave its adherents early on? A sense of dignity, karama. Remember when Muslims go, Muslims became famous that they would go to the courts of Byzantia and refuse to bend or prostrate. That they would go to the courts of Persia and refuse to bend or prostrate. Of course, when the age of empire came, corruption stepped in, but the early Muslims understood the Quranic message of dignity. We prostrate before God and no one else. A new phase in the history of humanity. Now, when it says, oh, so then, وَأَنَّهُ لَمَّا قَامَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ يَدْعُوهُ كَادُوا يَكُونُونَ الْعَلَيْهِ لِبَدًا Let's see how to... So, and when the servant of God rose to call upon God, they will nigh swarm him. This is the study Quran. Literally, it's correct, right? So, يَكُونُونَ عَلَيْهِ لِبَدًا Literally, but who's swarming who? What does that mean? What is the significance of who is the servant of God that rose to call upon God? Well, the answer to that is easy. It's the Prophet, Abdullah. It's, it's referring to the Prophet. But what is the significance of the Prophet being sworn? And here, two, again, two main views. One says, that this reference, Yakununa alayhi libada, is saying that the jinn swarm to hear the Quran. But the problem with that is so what? 
and يقولون عليه لبدا grammatically doesn't sound like something pleasant like the jinn swarming to hear the Quran يقولون عليه لبدا sounds rather ominous يقولون عليه لبدا swarm to oppress him that look this is this, this Abdullah when he stood up to call for God and and it doesn't say وَقُلْ أَنَّهُ لَمَّا قَامَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ it says وَأَنَّهُ لَمَّا قَامَ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ that it, it is as if consoling the Prophet and remarkably this is the only sentence of near consolation and where Allah is saying, yeah, I know, I know what's going on with you. I know that you're having a very hard time. So here, now, Allah is giving an affirmative command to the Prophet as to what to do. And what is the Prophet to do? To affirm the message. Say. I will not associate partners with God. And say, La wala rashada. There is nothing that I can do that can either harm you or benefit you. I am a messenger to you. وَلَنْ يَجِيرَنِي مِنَ اللَّهِ أَحَدٌ وَلَنْ أَجِدَ مِنْ دُونِهِ مُلْتَحَدًا And no one can protect me from God and there is no refuge other than God. إِلَّا بَلَاغًا مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرِسَالَاتِهِ وَمَنْ يَعْصِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَإِنَّ لَهُ نَارَ جَهَنَّمَ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا أَبَدًا This is 23. Um, yeah. If I do not convey from God God's messages and whoever disobeys God and God's messenger, they shall be, or the, yeah, they will be in hellfire. And قُلْ إِنْ أَدْرِي أَقَرِيبٌ مَا تُوَعَدُونَ أَمْ يَجْعَلُ اللَّهُ رَبِّي أَمْدًا I don't know when the hereafter is, which is the message that completely is confirmed in the Qur'an. عَالِمُ الْغَيْبِ فَلَا يُظْهِرُ عَلَى غَيْبِهِ أَحَدًا This is in the realm of God, the knower of the unseen. And so, 
the unseen is not shared by anyone except, and this is where we get to 27, except what God, the, 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 except for the messengers that God chooses to share the unseen with. These verses gave a debate, gave rise to a debate in the Islamic tradition about the nature of the unseen, meaning things like the future, things that like knowing that a relative died somewhere or having a premonition of something to come or you know, a mother realizing that her son around the globe just died, or stuff like that. And there, it broke down to, to, to schools. The Mu'tazila were the most hostile to the world, to the idea that the unseen is not, can be knowable to human beings. And the Mu'tazila were also hostile to the idea that jinn are material beings uh, that occupy space that can interact with human beings. On the other side of the spectrum, especially the Sufis, said that the ghaib can be known through a karama, meaning that a person would become so close to Allah that Allah would favor that person with knowledge of the unseen, whether the future or the present or even the past. And that Similarly, a person could become so close to Allah that the person would be given the ability to see jinn or to see angels or to see demons. Those who have the ability to glean the unseen that are not devout their ability comes from something demonic, not from something clean. Between the Sufis and the Mu'tazila, especially the Ash'aris and the Matiridis had a middle-of-the-road positions where it's fair to say they're skeptical to different degrees of skepticism. Most importantly was that the intense debate between the Ahlul Hadith and the Sufis about the Karamat, because the Ahlul Hadith rejected that, the, that it is possible for some pious people to have a karama, in other words, to see the unseen. My own position on this is that anytime anyone claims a karama, be skeptical 
especially when they tell you it comes from God. Normally people, but it doesn't mean that I don't believe in karamat. I actually do. But normally those who possess a karama are shy about it and very hesitant to share it and nearly embarrassed that they have it. They don't tout it. If they tout it, be very skeptical. Because anyone that has a real karama knows the extent of responsibility it comes with. And it is terrifying. And because it's so terrifying, it is not something that, you know, they like to sit among their students, you know, 20, 50 students and say, oh, let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. I'm very skeptical of that. Um, it just... Um, But I don't agree with the Mu'tazila that all claims of the unseen or the world of Ghaib are just hallucinations and made up. Um, I think that reliance, that trust in the rational world as sort of an impeccable tight fabric of existence that is unimpeachable is... is um, uh, over-exaggerated. And even, although I really don't want to get into this, but I believe as the closer we get to the hereafter, the fabric of reality starts getting more and more undone. But that's a very big theological issue and I don't want to discuss it tonight. So, you know, leave it to another time. Um, okay. Oh. Okay, it's it's Maghreb, so but give me give me just five minutes. Then twenty seven Illa Here, we are told that Allah protects Allah's messenger. Meaning, I guard my messenger from, and in, in the books of tradition, they tell you that there are, in fact, angels that protect the prophet or prophets from the front and from the back and so on. Now, why is this important? Do you remember when we talked about the satanic verses? How could the satanic verses happen if there are angels guarding the prophet all the time so that shaitan can't come and whisper anything to the prophet? The satanic verses do not make sense theologically, in part because of Surah Tujan. And 
finally the powerful affirmation that Allah has count of everything. Surah Jan, and maybe after Maghrib, I can elaborate on this, but Surah Jan comes at this very difficult point and tells Muslims, you're persecuted, you are nothing, you feel like nothing, you feel very low, but you are the reason for a cosmic change. You only see the world around you in Mecca. You don't know what is going around in uh, other than Mecca. You don't know what's going on in Bahrain. You don't know what's going on in Persia. You don't know what's going on in Egypt. Leave alone not knowing what's going on in the cosmos. Jinn, like angels, are all around you all the time. You might not know this, but your biggest accomplishment could be in the world of a very different dimension than yours. It could be that you're a nobody in your own dimension. But in our language, you could be a rock star in a different dimension. This is not what you should be preoccupied with. What you should be preoccupied with is to do what is right, to carry the message that God wants you to carry, to carry the mission that God wants you to carry, and that's it. A mind-boggling surah that comes and does it, does it, this is classic of the Quranic method of, and by the way, and we should learn this from our own life, you want a lift up, you want to cheer, feel good message, yes, but it has to be meaningful. It can't be feel good in, you know, the style of self-help books and our modern-day self-help methods. Oh, you're wonderful, you're great, you know, no rationality, no reason, no ethics, no morality. You're just wonderful. Why are you wonderful? Just because you are who you are. The Quranic style of lifting you up is not to pump air up you know you know what <laughs> it's to remind you of the truth and admittedly surah jin is among the surah that i most often recite uh, to myself when I'm praying alone is among the ones that I most love to recite to myself. Um, 
Okay, let's pray, Mother. Thank you for an incredible, incredible surah. I, so much to think about, and I mean, it's just stunning. Um, I think everyone is um, gathering their questions, but let me start by, with this. Actually, first of all, I meant to ask you last time for Nemal what the vicar was, just to confirm. I, I had it's written down 62. 62, just that. Okay. And then for today, it's the, the whole. It's today, no. Um, um, وأنه كان رجال من الإنس يعوذون برجال من الذن من الجن فزادوهم راقة yeah, I, I don't know if people have questions, but, you know, um, they're, they're, there's a really, um, I, I think this, I think, I'm, I'm sure Ronnie will, will check after me, but I think this is, um, Ismail Haqqi, Tafsir, um, where he says, he, he has a, a very nice discourse you know, when, it, when it comes to, to Surah Al-Jan, where he says that, that, uh, that our relationship to the unseen world, to the, to the world of of Ghaib, um, is um, often like the, the relationship of a, of a blind man uh, that has to rely on very indirect senses like hearing or smell to reality. But the, the part that, that I've always really liked where he talks about one's relationship with Allah uh, so he says, "Ma khalqal." What is it? No. Al khalq ma Allah, because He Taala knows them, and they do not know Him. For He Taala knows them wherever they are. In their paths, in their possibilities, in their ما الخلق معها معه تعالى فإنهم لا يعرفونه حتى يكونوا معه ولو عرفوه من طريق الإيمان لكانوا كالأعمى يعلم أنه جليس زيد ولكن لا يراه بخلاف أهل المشاهدة فإنه ذو بصر إلهي فمن دعا الله فمن دعا الله مع الله ما هو كمن دعاء الخلق مع الله هذا معنى فلا تدعو مع الله أحدا ثم أن السجود وإن كان لله لا يقرع في الحس أمضا so it's saying that you know if with Allah Allah is ever present the issue is that your relationship with God is like the relationship of a blind man to a hypothetical Zayd 
Zayd is, is present with you, sees you, knows you, uh, but you don't see Zayd. And you pick up on, on the presence of Zayd through different things, like maybe the noise he makes, the smell. But that once you, you become a'arif billah, the, the, the ability to sojourn and to actually see with the light of your heart, um, then you see Allah in, in, in the sense that Allah's presence is no longer hypothetical. Uh, or derivative or deductive but it is a direct awareness of Allah's presence uh, the other thing I, I, I want to say is that um, you know human beings don't realize that uh, there is really space in which you exist alone. Um, it's possible, I mean, it's possible for you to be in, at, at home or somewhere and, and you're, there's no one there. But there is always a 50% chance and in some places, much more than 50% chance, in some places it could be as much as 90% chance or 99% chance that wherever you are, there are other presence. And the other presence, whether angelic or demonic. Um, but a smart person would be very aware of this. Um, that is why I, I take to heart, for instance, uh, a lot of the Islamic tradition about being modest and bashful, like, you know, not uh, prancing around your empty apartment butt naked. Uh, it's possible that no, no one other than Allah sees you, but it's also possible that all types of things see you. And it, you develop a, a different type of consciousness if you internalize this view um, and you understand that and you understand that you need Allah's protection. I don't put much weight on um, the stuff that's popularized these days that, you know, in, the jinn inhabits your bathroom and your toilet. That, that stuff, I mean, to be quite honest with you, is nonsense. I, I wish it was that easy. The jinn inhabit everywhere. Uh, bathroom and no bathroom. Um, <laughs> They're more likely to exist in your bedroom than in your bathroom. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think they like bathrooms very much. Okay. Can I? <clears throat> now I'll let you ask questions. Can I? I just want to say the quote just for purposes of the transcript. For purposes of the transcript, Rami wants to look at the. Just where iPad. the the source is from. Where the source is from. So uh, I want to start by asking, um, so when you know that there are other presences with you, to me the next question would be, how do you become more of a magnet for the angelic and the good and protect yourself from the not good? Like, I mean, we, we talked about you know, turning on the Quran and all that other stuff, but 
Zikron law is, is foolproof protection. <clears throat> um, I mean, it, it's some people will, will you know, do zikr, but their heart is, um, but, 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 okay, when, if the only time zikr is not effective is when you are committing sin that block uh, the, the cleansing power of your zikr. You know, if your life is full of sin, I'm sorry, but your sins act like blocks. They, they really do block. Um, that's the bad news. A lot of people don't want to believe that their sin, that sin has an effect on their temporal life. Uh, but they do. Um, and, but, and I don't mean, you know, sin like, um, you know, I, but, you know, sin to anger God, you know, um, I mean, big versus small sins. Like sins could be okay. You you are impatient. You get angry. Yeah. You backbite people. You gossip. You you know you think that. Yeah. The, the, these are not the things that will block the uh, things that will block the is bigger sins. But including missing prayers. These are bigger sins. Um, missing prayers or not paying zakat or not giving sadaqah or um, lying. Lying is a big sin. Um, you shouldn't lie. Um, um, yeah. So these things block dhikr. The, the, Let's say you don't do so much dhikr, and you like well, do some like. Then, then you're vulnerable. Then you're then you're open. No, not dhikr. I don't mean dhikr by meaning sitting. The dhikrullah prayer is dhikrullah. Saying Bismillah Rahman and Rahim is dhikrullah. Saying Al-Zubillam Shaitanir Rajim is Dhikrullah. Anytime you mention God. And if you say Al-Zubillam Shaitanir Rajim, it, it is the most powerful, potent weapon. Uh, as long as you don't have sins blocking it. Uh, and and it, it, I mean, it is not. In the case of Shaitan Ladaif, the cunnings of Shaitan are weak. So, you know, when people come and say, you know, oh, I, I, um, I read Quran, I do prayer, but I still, you know, it, it, I, it, it's very, it's very unlikely that that's true. So, like, if you read Quran, but you're really not thinking about it, or you're <laughs> then turning that, on Quran and you're thinking about it, like, it's, you know, it, it, it's like... There's even worse, I've, yeah, I've, need, I've known people that will turn on Qur'an and then do something haram uh, while the Qur'an is playing. No, it's better not to turn on the Qur'an because it's a much bigger sin to have the Qur'an on and do something haram. Uh, so if you're going to do haram, make sure that you don't have the Qur'an on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I mean that actually is in is in good analogy. Like if you can't treat the Quran like as if you are just spraying aerosol, or you know. Um, but you know, it, it it is always remember that the only gen that will interact with human being 
at least in, in my school of thought, are jinn that are violating God's commands. They're not good jinn. And even if they come to you in the form of, you know, loved, the jinn have the ability to imitate voices, to imitate look, to, they, they know things about you that, or about your family. Um, I, I can't tell you like how many people I've encountered in life who have gone down what they started out as a joke, like seances or reading um, grinds uh, and coffee grinds or whatever, you know, just for being playful or Ouija boards or whatever. And then it turned really, uh, really dark. And, you know, of course, you know, after where it gets to the point of real desperation, that's usually when they come to talk to someone like me, but um, it, you just feel really bad for people because they, you know, Um, in a previous halakha, you talked about how the nature of humans is to be very forgetful. They have like a unique forgetfulness. And since then, I've, I've wondered if, I mean, I, I assume that this, this means that jinn don't have this quality about them. So when we got to the verse where it differentiates between jinn who are Muslim versus jinn who are qasitun, I wondered if, is that grounds that jinn can't, that their being misled is not the same as humans, meaning that they can't be kuffar? In other no, words? They, they can um, because not all jinn, that's a, that's a good question because there's a lot of the, uh, no, yeah, the, the question is, well, you know, are, is it possible for jinn to be kuffar? Because if they live long enough and they remember long enough, then they might have a direct experience with the divine. And, and so how could they not believe in God if they... But jinn are, um, yes, they live long lives, but they die, uh, just like human beings. Um, although... Satan seems to be an exception, um, but anyway, uh, and the jinn are not all because they are different clans and different tribes and different races. They they are of different types. So a lot of jinn, the only way that they know of not not all jinn can reach the al al-Ala, or even attempt to eavesdrop. Uh, um, you find in Jewish and Islamic sources a lot written about the different types of, of course, the Jewish sources, they don't call them jinn, but they're, they're talking about jinn. Um, what are they called in Jewish sources? Um, the the book is basically mm -hmm. jinn. Um, um, but the, the, you know, the, about the different races, different types, different languages, and so many of them do not have a direct experience with God or even in, and so there as far as we know that there are jinn who are actually kufar. they don't believe. There are jinn who are worse, uh, and these are the direct followers of Satan who 
are defiant. They, they, they know that there is a God, but they are in complete rebellion. Um, but, you know, um, there, you know, sometimes people ask me, is it useful to know about the types of jinn and so on? And my answer is, unless you are training to uh, fight occult practices, it's better not to know. There's no need to. Just know that God is the ultimate protector and a complete protector and a foolproof protector as long as your heart is with God. Um, if you are, you know, if you're a, someone who's training to, to fight occult practices, then yeah, you need to be an expert and, and you, you know, the, the, but other than that, there's no need. So I don't actually recommend that people read about jinn or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to go to the interactive questions. Um, okay. I would like to move to a different home and worry. Uh, the worry I have is the energy of that new home. If that space is haunted, is there anything I can do upon moving in to cleanse it? Um, I assume, the, okay, first question, do you, um, uh, do you have access to any pious person that you trust who can recite Quran in Arabic? No. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, then the the second option is remember that prayer um, and Quran is protection. So already when you pray in in a, in a new place and you turn on Quran, you are cleansing and you are protecting. The other thing I would, you know the Rukia, right? I showed you the, the apps for the Rukia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when, the other thing I would recommend is that uh, Greece can tell you the app for uh, the, 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 the set of Quranic verses that are read to cleanse space. And a lot of them, they come in the voice of different Quranic reciters. And so you can you can turn it on. You can just turn on the app and play it. And as you turn it on, just have the intentionality that the that that Allah protect you through that recitation. So it's you're projecting your intentionality upon the recitation that you're turning on, and that will be very effective. And if I'm ever around your house and, and COVID is not a concern, I'll come, you know, <laughs> make sure it's safe. That's Rafida. Oh, it's Rafida? Okay. Yeah. Can we do virtual cleansing? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> What's the name of the app? Rukia. Rukia. Oh, the I think it's R-U-Q-U-I-A. 
R-U-Q-Y-A or something like that. I'll look at it. R-U-Q-Y-A. R-U-Q-Y-A, something like that. Okay. Okay, related to things spooky, is black magic real? And if so, why does God allow it? I never understood this. Um, yeah, black magic is real. Uh, but um, it is very effective among those who make themselves vulnerable. Um, in other words, uh, it is not true that black magic um, can victimize those who are in God's protection. Um, so, you know, it, it is, and I mean, from speaking from, telling you from personal experience, I've, in my previous life, I've defied black magicians to go ahead and put spell all the spells they want on me. Um, and, um, you know, basically told them, give me your best shot. And that's not unusual. I mean, the people that, um, Sheikh Amr, who I knew in Egypt, who's, a, who's an actually an exorcist, uh, same thing. I mean, it, it black magic on the, on people who are in, in whose belief in God and is firm and who protect themselves with prayer and zikr and it, it is uh, it is weak. It's it just does nothing. Um, why is it effective? It is effective in in the way that evil is effective in the sense that. For goodness to exist, there has to be the opposite. And, it, you know, whatever... It, the, for there to be the possibility of human beings who can achieve divinity, there had to be human beings that can descend to the demonic. I mean, was it possible for human beings to be divine without the demonic? Well, only if they were angels. So for human beings to have the potentiality of divinity, they, they by the nature of the laws of creation, um, there had to be the opposite. In the same way, if there is only light, then there is no light. If darkness is not a possibility, then light becomes meaningless. Um, light is only meaningless, is, is only meaningful because of the existence of the contrast to light. Um, you know, if there was no devil, would angels be angels? They would just be it. It. So, uh, but... Everything that is involved in black magic, all it is, is that the, the demonic uses the fact that human beings have strayed away from the light to darkness to manipulate the laws of darkness to capitalize on their own power vis-a-vis -vis that darkness. But they, they are completely powerless before the light. 
Um, and and that is critical. So, to, you know, when I, these people that go and they spend a lot of money trying to, you know, I someone has put a spell on me and they go pay people to try to get, that's all, that that is nonsense. That That's just, um, uh, you you don't need to spend money to get it is it is faith and iman and it is the power of your iman that will protect you. Okay. Um, Salam. As someone who is super logical and an engineer, I have trouble believing that jinn exist. I know it does. But for some reason, I can't wrap my head around the concept, if that makes sense. Are there, do you have any thoughts on how to rationalize the idea so that I may be able to digest it? Um, well, I mean, there are things, but I, I you know, I don't want to send you there. Um, <laughs> you know, um, there, there are... You know, in this day and age, ironically, um, because we, we've got, you know, there are things that just, uh, the so-called, you know, it, it's like you have to be um, dogmatically, a dogmatic denier to refuse to come to terms with all the things that especially this day and age, technologically, we're able to capture. Um, it is sort of ironic that we we just, we're now just able to, you know, so, you know, we've got, uh, we capture UFOs, um, uh, which is now even official. I mean, governmentally official. There is a, there is a, um, if you think, you know, only like, um, Losers and alcoholics and drug addicts are the ones that see UFOs. There's a documentary called Unacknowledged that you should watch. Uh, you should watch. Uh, where, you know, these top-notch scientists, um, high, you know, senators and, you know, top-notch, top, they talk about their UFO experiences and the UFO evidence and, and UFOs are gin. I mean, it, it just... That's not the way, uh, of course, non-Muslims want to see it, but they are Jinn. Um, and then, you know, there are um, uh, easily captured things like you, all the um, the uh, EVPs, the electronic voice phenomena. I mean, electronic, they're, they're sentences. You know, when, when, you, when you capture a growl in empty space, and there are places that I you should never go, and you, but you have a recorder with you, and you know you capture a growl, or you get scratched, uh, or you get bitten um, out of thin air. These are things that are real. They're, they're I mean, they're they're not. I, I've experienced them. <laughs> they're not hypothetical. Um, you know. Uh, uh, and you know if. In, and now you know there, there most of the stuff on on television. I mean, there's a lot of nonsense, but uh, more more reliable ones. There's a 
show called Ghost Adventures, they at least they don't fabricate evidence. I mean, um, they, but they capture a lot of stuff that is just not explainable, um, including you know images on cameras and there, there is a show called Paranormal Car on Camera. Um, try to see if you can explain what's captured. Now, I, you know, but my advice to you, don't invest time in all of that. Why? You know, um, inshallah, Allah will never ha put you in an experience where you meet or hear jinn. That's my prayer, personally. Uh, just pray, just accept that jinn exists because the Quran says it exists. But as far as conducting your affairs in life, they don't exist. Um, why? You know, don't, don't watch any, why open that door? You don't need to. Just say, I believe in the Quran and I believe in God's word and, and God said they exist, so they exist. But I don't want to experience them. I don't want to have any contact with them. I don't want have anything to do with them. I just want to be a good Muslim. And khalas, alhamdulillah. And may you never, ever have an experience. Because that is the, you know, you, I don't want you to believe. I don't you know, want you to have an experience where you believe. Because when people do have experience, especially people who've lived rationalist, as rationalists all their life, you know, someone like me can have an experience and it bothers them for, uh, you know, an hour, and but they get over it and they're, they go on to nothing, as if nothing happened. Uh, people who've lived, like rationalists, computer scientists, engineers, uh, so on, experiences traumatize them. Uh, I mean, they get, they need counseling, that level of trauma. So why? Okay. Um, do the shaitan ilk procreate? Do they go through the cycle of life, for example, death? Also, does Satan have a chance to repent? Well, that issue of Satan's chance to repent, Satan had a chance from the very beginning, and whether the chance continues or God has withdrawn the chance is a intensely theologically debated issue, not just in Christian in, in Islam, but in Christianity uh, as well. Uh, it's a very interesting theological question. You know, it's very interesting because there were people that God condemned in the Quran like Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl, and all they needed to do to destroy the Islamic message forever was to convert to Islam. Because if they would have, then the Quran would have lied and 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 then this this message is nonsense. But subhanAllah they never did. And theolo you know some theologians say the same thing about Satan. Um you know wouldn't it be a massive coup if Satan uh, decides to submit to God and no longer whisper evil to anyone. Um, Satan do, did procreate. Um, we are the descendants of Adam. Some 
you know whether uh, whether some jinn are the descendants of Satan or all jinn are descendants of Satan is another issue that is theologically debated, but it's it's more likely that some jinn are the descendants of Satan. Um, they do have life cycles, but uh, the some like Satan seem to have extremely long life cycles, and some um, types seem to have far shorter life cycles, but, you know, not as short as human beings. You know, uh, if dog, you know, dogs live 50, around 15 years, if they have a long life, uh, human beings, you know, anything around 70, 80 is considered a good long line of life, but jinn have a different line of life. They, they go on for centuries. So yes, they, but they do die, and they do have life cycles, and they do procre procreate. But this issue of repentance is, is theologically and philosophically fascinating. Um, you know, all indications are that Satan has free will. So, you know, what is Satan's ultimate plan? Um, some theologians actually believe that Satan is so arrogant that Satan believes that eventually he will, he will be able to overthrow God or somehow thwart God's plan um, so that hell will never be a reality. Most theologians, and especially the theologians you would have heard about in, in modern Islam, uh, say no, Satan knows that it's all, you know, but Satan just too defiant, too arrogant. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I'm not sure whether it, it is, that's it. Um, Satan was doomed, was no chance for, or is it that just God knows that Satan will never repent? And so we are, you know, uh, some like Ibn Sina, this, this type of, these types of questions led him to say that jinn are a metaphor, but of course Ibn Sina is a, is a very small minority in the Islamic tradition. Sin, jinn are a metaphor and Satan is a metaphor. So Ibn Sina actually doesn't believe that there is an actual being called Satan. But he's been criticized uh, even by, you know, people like Ibn Rushd and um, so. But I mean, these are, these are uh, seriously debated things. It's just that modern Muslims don't know that these were things that were very intelligently um, if you want, if you if you guys who can access Arabic, if you want just the taste of how intelligent these discussions are, I could give any any of you an assignment. Uh, take on the challenge and report back to me. Read Al Razi's commentary on Surah Al-Jinn, and I will give you a book as a reward. 
if you can accurately and correctly translate what Ar-Razi says about Surah Al-Jannah. Because the vast majority of Muslims cannot understand what accurately understand what Ar-Razi says about Surah Al-Jannah. Any book? Any book? Wrong no, I choose the book. <laughs> you don't choose the book. Okay. You want for like my most important, most rare book. No, you gotta be careful what you say around Rami. I know. <laughs> um, okay, so I have a couple questions. Um, one is small and one is larger. Um, the small one is that I'm surprised that, you know, when we live in, in like a country like the West, you know, we talk about like how is it that shaitan is winning and shaitan wins when he, you know, when people actually believe there's no such thing as shaitan or there's no such thing as darkness. But, or like when you can go to Target and you can buy a Ouija board, you know, like these things to me are, are like alarming and really upsetting. Is there anything that, you know, that people should avoid that you've seen, I guess, that Muslims maybe don't know or shouldn't or should know well, about I mean, opening the, portals and opening yeah, darkness. The, and don't, like that. don't, don't, you know, seances and Ouija boards and th this this stuff is no joke. I mean, yeah, you could have a hundred Ouija board sessions and nothing happens, but there will be this one time where something comes through that could turn your life into a living hell. I mean. This is not, I, I've known, personally known, people who, because of a Ouija board, the bruises would appear on their bodies, scratches, bites, um, it, it, their, their lives just turned into an absolute living hell. Um, a long time ago, I actually helped someone who was not even a Muslim, who was a Christian guy, uh, but just had gone to to um, his church and they tried to help him and they, you know, what, the priest or whatever, the reverend came and it was holy water and, you know, did crosses all over the corners of the home with holy water and planted crosses in the four corners, around the four corners of the house and didn't help at all. Um, so, I mean, and it all started from a Ouija board. So this stuff is, is um, but there is, a, there, there is a schizophrenia and a, and a paradox about our identity in the modern world, is that we, we didn't, you know, officially, everything that has to do with our commodified and commercialized economic world says, we ignore UFOs, we ignore the paranormal, only we acknowledge them only if it leads to profit. So among the biggest bestsellers are ghost hunting apps uh, on your phone. You know, for five dollars you download the ghost hunting app and a ghost radar, and they're very dangerous. Don't do that. Don't download them and don't turn them on. Um, they're they're very dangerous. Uh, you know, we Ouija boards because people buy them. But then in the logic, our everyday logic, we want to completely ignore everything. So we, we create the problem so that some people can make profit 
but the solution is not there unless uh, people can profit on the solution. But if there is no profit, then we ignore it. So our real God, the, the God of our reality, is really profit, the money. Mm -hmm. um, but the irony is, you know, the, I, I find people, the same people who go ghost hunting and they'll think it's a sport. You know, and I'm talking about professionals. So at night, they go ghost hunting. They go to abandoned places like, you know, um, uh, uh, abandoned hospitals or abandoned retirement homes or whatever, and they go ghost hunting. And then, but at the same time, they don't really believe they believe in the supernatural, but they don't believe in God. Okay, so they're terrified of, they're really scared of things like, you know, growls or scratches or the demonic or whatever, but they only believe in God if it, they need to get cleanse something out of their home. Um, and then they might start going to church. I'm actually thinking of actual people. You know, they'll only go to church until they get rid of the problem and then they're back again to their sin also. I don't know, the modern psyche has been rotted out with the logic of profit. And we are just, we're not ants like the Quran talks about, but we are like, uh, levers in a machine, in a profit-making machine. You know, you pull this lever, you pull this lever, we're all levers. Uh, and, and we count only to the extent that we make a certain class of people rich. But beyond that, we really don't count. I, I mean, even now, for the right money, and again, I emphasize, for the right money, there are paranormal counselors. These are psychologists who have studied parapsychology and they specialize in, counts, give it, in counseling people who've had traumatic paranormal experiences, but they're very expensive. Mm -hmm. So you have to pay for that extra thing. I mean, come on. Okay. Um, my, my second question is, well, first of all, um, I'm, one of the things I'm really grateful for um, in being married to you is that, well, one, he forced me to watch a lot of horror movies and ghost shows, so I feel like my, my tolerance for and fear for a lot of that stuff was replaced by knowledge, which was very useful. Hey, um, you had a choice. I didn't force you. <laughs> I well, just, you know, I just said that if you don't, if you don't, I'll stop talking to you forever. That's all. <laughs> you want to be a good wife. You want to be a good companion. You go to movies you don't like. You know, it's part of marriage. Um, but the the thing that actually um, always fascinated me, and you know that I'm always after you to write your novel on oh Islamic exorcism, um, is just yeah. the notion that um, you know. There's a whole sophisticated, you know, approach to exorcism that is Islamic. Because when people think of exorcisms, they only think of 
priests and you know with crosses and the exorcism movie you know and so when people get in trouble and they think that they have you know some like something that needs to be exercised they will all automatically think about you know the catholic church or catholic priests but for muslims they don't know that 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 we have a whole history and methodology and you know all of that that's extremely rich and powerful and actually more effective than that and I you know has the reason why I always push him to write this novel is that there are many different ways people can learn about Islam and through the sophistication of that it would be very interesting so but I just wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about like how does the Islamic methodology for exorcism differ from say the Christian the Christian um, exorcist or the you know the, the prevailing idea of what exorcism is which is Christian right Um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll change the question to what I can't answer because okay. there, there's stuff I, I don't want to say. Um, you know, I've already said that other, you know, anyone that tells you, the, the, you know, the gin comes out of your toe or out of your finger or uh, all of that is nonsense. Anyone that tells you I need to beat a gin out of you or burn a gin out of you. Uh, all of that is nonsense. I've actually testified in a criminal case um, uh, where I helped convict an Egyptian guy who abused the heck of, of another guy uh, supposedly because he was exercising him. And I'm talking about here in the United States. And I have no moral qualms about sending someone like that to prison. Uh, because you can't use physical abuse. You can't use exorcism as an, as an excuse to commit physical abuse because you're a sadist. And then use Islam to try to avoid uh, responsibility. If I come across, across you, I will help put you in prison. Um, and I did that. I mean, this is part of my official record. Um, the guy got a very stiff sentence. And I was very proud that he tried to use Islamophobes to avoid prison. Because Islamophobes were going to testify, oh no, this is what Muslims do. And of course, my qualifications compared to these Islamophobes, I blew them out of the water. And uh, I gave very rational testimony as to what happens. in, in a... So that part, just keep in mind, um, the other thing is, I will say something that is rather uncomfortable. The culture of the cross and the Trinity, um, people don't realize this, but it actually aggravates uh, possessions, uh, oppressions and possessions. So the reason, the, 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 the number of, of possessions and how bad they get compared to the Muslim and Jewish world is far worse in the Christian world because of the Trinity and the cross. That's just a sad reality. Um, um, so... 
real possessions in the Islamic world are very rare. And usually, if we intervene early enough, uh, you know, the, the Quran, you don't need sage and crystals and or crosses and holy water and I, uh, the Quran in 99.9% .9 of situations just you know it's killed and you know you sniff it out you, you, you snub it out you just you, it, it goes situations where there are actual possessions it's usually people who have done really horrible things. Um, like Satan worshipping, um, gone to black magicians and put omens on cast spells on people. Uh, I knew a guy in Egypt that used to steal uh, the corpses of dead people from the grave sites and sell them to medical students, uh, you know, eventually got possessed. Uh, and usually they are, you know, they don't, no one gets help for them till it's very, very late. Um, A real exorcism, as opposed to a psychological problem that really needs a good psychiatrist, not an exorcist. A real exorcism, usually things will happen that violate the laws of nature. Like things flying around, levitation, um, you know, so we, things like that. You look for things like that. That's as much as I want to say. It's getting very uncomfortable. Okay, thank you. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Alhamdulillah, I'm going to regime. <laughs> Do we have time for one more? You know, for question, person who asks these questions, she's a scary cat. <laughs> you know, it's like... Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, she's a she Most of the time, if I try to tell her about you know anything that happens, it's like she doesn't want to know. So she's a scary cat. I'm just listening to your advice not to want to know. Yeah, also. <laughs> like, if I write that exorcism novel, she's not going to read it. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's, well, I'll have to think about that. We'll write it first, and then we'll decide. <laughs> um. In this, in this surah, it talks about the jinn trying to go and breach the barrier to heaven and, yeah. and being met by, by comments. But in Surah Ar-Rahman, it says, Ya ma'ashar al-jinni wa insi So, no, I mean, guess it's a two-part question. Number one is heaven, is that barrier actually a physical place that humans can get to? Or is it something that humans are able to access through things like black magic or some transcendental means and why it, it it's just confusing to me that it's addressing humans and jinn no but, but sort of the jinn it's it the the jinn paraphrases the jinn saying this to the prophet 
But the reason they say it is to tell the Prophet about the cosmic change. Mm -hmm. not, to, not because human beings can access that barrier or even come close to that barrier. The only black magic doesn't at all come near the barrier. What black magic does is that it basically connects to a jinn that uh, is high enough in the hierarchy to pick up little bits of information that they then mix with a lot of stuff and they give it to practitioners in black magic. It, no black magic I am aware of works, human black magic works without the assistance of jinn. Um, before, before you continue, I misspoke. It's not that I'm thinking of black magic. I'm specifically thinking of there's a new form of transcendental meditation that actually uh, is is the function of it is to connect yeah, with yeah, aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they so don't, I'm more yeah. thinking of things in line with that. Yeah, there, there is, and and sadly, uh, someone as rational as uh, Doctor Stephen Greer, who like was one of the pioneers of the disclosure project about UFOs. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he's gotten people involved into this transcendental meditation to make contact with aliens. And in case you don't know what this is, what they actually do is that all these professionals, and they're, they're mostly professionals, lawyers, doctors, engineers, you know, they go to somewhere in the in the desert in the forest some some and they actually sit and stand in a circle and they meditate and they meditate until a UFO shows up in the in the in the sky and they film it and I've seen enough of these films I mean to, the, the UFO actually does show and it, it doesn't land or anything and they're so excited. We're communicating with aliens. We're communicating with aliens. And of course, they're just communicating with jinn. Um, and it will end very badly. I mean, right now, it's still new enough that they're all on a high. And they all swear by how wonderful the experience is. And it's proof that, you know, the aliens love human beings and aliens want to save Earth and aliens want to save human beings from the evils of nuclear weapons and the follies and, and there is a new consciousness that is coming to human beings because after all, you know, maybe it's we are descendants of these aliens who, you know, on and on and on. And, um, you know, I would love to meet these people 10, 20 years from now when, you know, they have hauntings of their homes and some of them are possessed, and some of them have serious psychological problems and other problems, it's not going to end well. Because they are contacting jinn. And the jinn that come through with that type of meditation are not the God-fearing jinn. They're not the good jinn. Uh, but they, they, you know, they, they trick them. Um, and even when I saw these videos, it's not that they say, oh, we get communications. Well, why do you, how do you get communications? Well, you know, at the same time the UFO appeared, I got a remarkable sense of peace. Or 
I got a message. We want peace. We love you, human beings. <laughs> you know, it came to, through to me in my psyche. Oh my you know, come on. Yeah. Okay, well, there's one last good question, but if, if you don't want to finish it, because I know we're like at the edge of our time. Um, but if you have time, could you please explain how Hesed and the evil eye work? Um, Hasad is there. There are two main theories about Hasad. Um, human beings affect energy. Human beings have an effect of energy, and all of us have an energy field around us, and um, you have an impact on the energy around you. So one school of thought is that envy is basically the, the, the negative energy of a human being having a direct impact on the neutral or positive energy of another human being. Um, and so it is literally like assaulting someone, but through non-physical ways. I have, I used to ascribe to that, I used to believe in it in my uh, anti-paranormal days where I was a strict rationalist, so everything had to make mathematical sense, and if it didn't, I didn't believe in it. Uh, I eventually migrated to the second school of thought. That Hasad is a negative energy that attracts bad jinn that then target the object of your hasad. Um, and the reason I migrated to that school is because of my experiences. Um, hasad, you have to remember, hasad is not an accident. It's not a hit and run, you know, accident. It's not like, oh, I just look at you and it just happens that I hit you with my eye. No. Hasad is, the, is, an, is an, an, an inside that is unclean. And it covets. And one of the strongest human emotions is to covet. Whether you covet someone's husband, or you covet someone's wife, or you covet someone's car, or you covet someone's profession, or you covet... But if that coveting becomes like, I want it, and why do they have it? Why do they have it? Uh, if negative, you know, like crime, rape, murder, violence, losing your temper is like sending out beacons. It's like, acts like a, like a beacon to dark energies, to, to jinn. And if you happen, your beacon goes off, and there's a jinn around that wants to target you, and it's a very big, long topic, why would they want to target you? They come and they say, oh, wow, there's an opportunity here. Someone is committing a crime. Someone is very angry. Someone is very envious. Boom. And if they come through and connect, they have a portal. They have an entry. And then through that portal, they'll target 
it, it's like the, they have the opportunity now to do what they consider to be fun and fulfilling. Um, but Hasad, you know, there, uh, someone that I, I uh, used to, you know, I, I accompanied for, for a while in, in Egypt, uh, Sheikh Hamra, you know, he believes that Hasad is among the most powerful forces in existence. I disagree. I think actually Hasad is, is uh, if you protect yourself with enough dhikr and enough Quran, nothing can attach you. It is only when you've become lax in dhikr or when someone envies you and then you open up a portal by a mistake, by committing a sin or by losing your temper or by committing violence, that's when it latches. And Allahu Alam, you know, God knows best. Alhamdulillah, there's so many good questions, but I think we have to stop here or we'll be here all night. Um, thank you so much for, this has been invaluable and I think this topic is especially interesting for everyone So and so important. So Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for, for joining us and being with us and we'll look forward to seeing you. Join us for Tarawiyah, um, either like we try, as I said, to around 10.30, but if you're subscribed to us, as soon as we go live, you'll know. Um, and um, inshallah on Saturday, we'll see you again for the halakha. Oh, uh, look, the tazz is there. Okay, do you want to say hey. salam? Hey! <laughs> Salaamu Alaikum. Okay, Mafaz, hang on for a bit so we can connect about our, our, our plans. I lost my, uh, my pen. Okay, we'll find it. Thank you so much, everybody. Inshallah, we'll see you soon. Salaamu Alaikum.